Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Jason Kreiss, whose U.S. under-23 men's national team starts the Olympics qualifying tournament this Thursday. We've had some great guests lately, including Ian Joy, Shannon McCarthy, and Crystal Dunn. I also encourage you to check out my podcast series, American Prodigy, The Freddie Adu Story, All eight episodes are out, and you can binge all of them to your heart's content. We'll have Jason Kreiss on soon, but let's start with some talk about the soccer world with my friend Chris Whittingham, the radio voice of Inter Miami and a co-host of the Chelsea Miked Up podcast. Chris, thanks for joining me. How are you? Doing great. I am uh, still awed by the audacity of a Rabona attempted today, but I'm doing well. (laughs) (laughs) This is what we're going to start talking about here. North London Derby, Arsenal 2, Spurs 1. A lot of stuff happening in this game and ahead of this game. No Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, who's been disciplined, did not play, uh, apparently for missing, being late to a team meeting or something. Hungman Sohn for Spurs goes out early, injured in this game. Eric Lamella comes on. Scores one of the most outrageous goals I've ever seen on a Rabona that goes through the legs of a defender, bends it, just insane goal. Then Lamella gets sent off. Arsenal controls the game. Deflected Martin Odegaard equalizer for Arsenal. Lacazette penalty. Ten-man Spurs has a couple chances late, but does not find the back of the net. Ten-man Spurs were the best Spurs. Exactly. Arsenal wins the game. And you mentioned just the outrageousness of even trying a Rabona in the box. I've seen what happens when Rabonas go wrong. And it looks really bad. (laughs) Like, I remember being at the Confederations Cup in 2009 covering USA Brazil. Brazil is stuffing the U.S. in this opening game. And the U.S. has a rare break. And Clint Dempsey tries a Rabona against Brazil on the Clint break. Dempsey. Very Clint Dempsey. It's kind of like the the defining thing that Bruce Arena once said about Clint when he was emerging. He tries shit. Um, he try he tried a Rabona. <laughs> he really does. There's no more audacious footballer in the history of the U.S. men's national team. Who is even second place? And how far away is like? Is it like Freddie Adu? Like who's even second place in the audacious power rankings? And it's it's it. The Rabona doesn't come off for Dempsey, and it it was just it it looked terrible. And and Bruce Arena, I wasn't no, it wasn't Bruce Arena. It was the coach. It was Bob Bradley was the coach. Yeah. Looked like he was about to blow a stack <laughs> on the sideline. Of course, Dempsey comes back and redeems himself in that tournament and is one of the players of the tournament. The U.S. gets to the final and loses to Brazil 3-2, beats Spain, all of that. But, like, just I, the thing I love about a Rabona is at first you don't, your eyes don't totally feel like they're seeing anything out of the ordinary until you're like, oh, wait, what is that? (laughs) You you can't process it in real time. It's like, wait a second, what? (laughs) Just an incredible goal. And he's actually, Lamel has done it before for Spurs in in European competition a couple of years ago. I thought this one today, just because of the the circumstances, the context going through the legs was even better. But um, one of the all-time great goals, then he gets sent off. Um, I mean... When it comes down to it, Arsenal deserved to win this game, right? 
Yeah, I, I think particularly in that first half when Spurs really offered nothing except for that Rabona, right? It was not a whole lot going forward. And it's just so weird to me that they have so many great attacking players and the emphasis in their side is not to attack, right? And that's obviously the Jose way. But you see when Spurs are trailing, I think that I think Spurs are at their most fun when they are trailing, right? When when they were two 0 down to West Ham a couple of weeks ago, that was by far the most entertaining I've seen Spurs in a long time. Yep. It's our Jose goes, all right, go for it, and all these immensely talented attacking players go for it, and they're brilliant at going forward. It's why they made a Champions League final. So I just find it so frustrating that in a game of this magnitude. Jose Mourinho still set up in the very Jose Mourinho way. And it wasn't until, frankly, in my view, Spurs were down to 10 minutes. They played their best stuff. And it was like their best stuff by a good distance. Yeah, totally agree with you on that. And that's just part of the bargain with Mourinho, I think. I mean, Spurs had won three straight league games coming into this. So, like, it seemed like they were in in a good run of form. Bale seemed to be making an impression again. Did not in this game. It was terrible to be pretty today, yeah. upset to come off. Um, and, you know, I think Arteta comes out of this. It's a little weird to me to discipline Aubameyang by like, we're not going to start you, but we're going to have you available. Like, a little odd. Maybe that's their policy. I don't know. But I, I think he took a stand here and, and ended up not using him at all. And they get three points in the in the Derby win. So kind of a victory there for Arteta. Um, can, I just go, can I just go back to the Rabona very quickly? Because I feel like <laughs> I, I sensed a transition coming. I have a very hot take, which is that the Rabona is stupid, right? It is the most useless <laughs> Where who was the first person like you know what instead of just using my weaker foot I'm gonna bring my stronger foot behind my weaker foot and poke it because it's my stronger foot where does the thought even come from and yet I mean it was the only way he was going to score that goal if he was going to score that goal the window that he puts it through is extraordinary but like I've never been able to get over just like as a purely functional thing you do like I get it if you're playing on the street in a five aside game and you're trying to make someone look foolish but in a real professional game of football to do this is like beyond comprehension and the audacity for it to not only come off but like work in the uh, that's the only way he could have scored there is just I'll, I'll never get over where the idea even comes from I just imagine and this may not even be true I just imagine for years now that Eric Lamella when he's like in a training session yes will like do Rabonas and stuff and his teammates are kind of exasperated with it and yes. like the one time they're not exasperated with it is today <laughs> <laughs> yeah well and if his teammates are if his teammates are then his coaches are definitely <laughs> exasperated watching him do that stuff on the training ground <laughs> Because I had a friend of mine down in Argentina send me uh, a video, which I posted on my, retweeted on my Twitter, um, of Lamella scoring on a Rabona for like River Plate's youth team, like way (laughs) back in the day. And um, so he's been doing this for a while, but you're right. I mean, like it's, it's basically saying my right foot is so bad compared (laughs) to my left foot. And it should be kind of embarrassing for a professional to admit this, right? Right. Well, I mean, well, I will say, though, it's long been like, like Messi, for instance, just uses... Imagine 
if there was like one summer where he just committed to being great with his right foot, like doesn't even bother. And he's still like one of the best players ever, if not the best player ever. Like it's actually kind of remarkable how many players are bad with one foot. I'm trying to imagine the equivalent of Rabona in basketball. Like, could you imagine a guy who like had no left hand? And so like, if he was like, in, in a position where he had to use his left hand, he took his right hand and somehow flicked the ball yeah. up behind himself. You just can't imagine it. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm now. I, now I have a picture in my head of is it a is it like like a no look behind the back? Would it like isn't <laughs> behind like what's the point of behind the back? I, like I, I, is it like kind of the the passes that like in dunk contests or all star games that get like bounced between your legs or bounced off the backboard? It's just like it's audaciousness for the sake of it. Look. As a means of entertainment, I tweeted this. Like, we have watched so many terrible games in this COVID era because they're all on now. Like, there's no games that you can skip. Well, I mean, you can skip them, but, like, all, they're all there. And so you watch a lot of terrible games. And for, like, up pops, you know, from this morass of awfulness, this glorious goal. And every time I see it, it's just I, I notice a new thing. Yeah. There's a couple other things I was looking at after this goal. Was I, I looked up Diego Maradona's... Uh, Rabona assist, which I posted, which is just amazing, uh, which he does over long distance from the, the far right side, young Diego, uh, in a game for the Argentine national team. And then if you do a Google search for when Rabonas go wrong, <laughs> you'll have you'll have some really fun stuff pop up that reminds you of like what can happen when it doesn't work out. <laughs> I saw the NBC pundit uh, Danny Higginbotham post on Twitter that he once tried it in training and was out 12 weeks with an injury. <laughs> That's how poorly it went. Uh, so it's it's not for everyone. I'm looking at this Maradona Marabona. Oh, my God. That's a yeah. flawless cross. Uh, yeah. What is, is is this now the most, what is the most famous Rabona? I mean, this has to be up there, the Lamella yeah. one, um, as was his previous goal that he scored uh, yeah. with a Rabona. I mean, like, um, I saw someone on Twitter actually w making the point that they thought Rabona goals were even better than bicycle kick goals. And I'm totally down with that. Um, I guess my question would be compared to scorpion kick goals, mm. where would Rabona goals fall? But, you know, they're, they're both pretty great. They're both pretty great. <laughs> I, I, I feel like scorpion kick goals are just kind of like this is the only possible way I can do this and I'm just going to give it a shot. And if it happens to, to go in the right direction and get and go in the golden great, but it's a little, it seems a little bit of maybe a bit more luck involved. That's yeah. fair. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, other than uh, Igita, I don't know if anyone's practicing scorpion kicks. Uh, so <laughs> I, 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 I agree with that. I'm, I'm trying to think like, what is the, the, the best vert, like the, most non-traditional way of scoring a goal that is kind of most audacious and, and bad. I mean, Rabona is up there. Scorpion kick is up there. Is there anything else that we're missing? Is there, like, I'm trying to think of, you know, like, you know, uh, like kind of vivid goals in my head. Like, I know Robin Van Persie's goal at the World Cup is a diving header, but it's not a diving mm -hmm. header in the way that other people have diving headers. Like, I, like what is kind of the most extraordinary way of scoring a goal? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I guess, like, the Rabona, the more times you watch it, the more amazed you get because yeah. in real time, it's a little harder to see than the scorpion kick. <laughs> the the one in the Europa League, I, I, before we started, I, I watched a YouTube compilation and the one in the Europa League is number one of like the, the this random YouTuber put up. Uh, but there's some that are just, I mean, Angel Di Maria had one in a shirt that I don't recognize. Might have been Benfica, <laughs> but it was like some orange shirt. Uh, but I mean, there, there are definitely some just 
absolutely out of this world goals. But I just don't feel like at the highest level, you're getting what you saw today that often because that kind of creativity, ingenuity is, as you said, so often frowned upon either on the training ground or by coaches or by pundits that that kind of audacity gets beaten out of you. I kind of admire that Eric Lamella still does this. Yeah, I do too. I can only imagine what it was like in the locker room when his teammates came back in because and he's there. Like, does he shrug? Does he sort of hide today? I mean, like one of the greatest goals of all time and a red card in the same yeah. game. Well, I mean, well, again, like the Spurs weren't that affected by the red card. I feel like if I'm a <laughs> if I'm a Spurs teammate, I go into that locker room and be like, damn, that was awesome. Like like there no one will remember anything from this game other than that goal. Like the result, I mean, in five years from now, we'll forget this two right. one result to Arsenal. No one's gonna forget this goal. No one. <laughs> One other thing before we have our interview with Jason Kreiss, let's talk about the U.S. men's under-23 Olympic qualifying, which starts this Thursday against Costa Rica. Difficult group with Costa Rica, Mexico, and the Dominican Republic. Only two teams are going to get out of the group and have a chance to play in the semifinals for a spot that goes to the winner of the two semifinal games. Um the U.S. men have obviously missed out on the last two Olympics. I remember covering the 2008 Olympics, that soccer tournament in China. I was going back and forth from all the U.S. women's games to all the men's games. Felt like I was on a Chinese bullet train all the time. But that was actually a pretty fun U.S. men's Olympic team uh, with you know players like our, our guy Freddie Adu, Michael Bradley, Josie Altador, Stu Holden, Charlie Davies, Brian McBride was the older age guy or one of the older age guys on the team. Um, And this was a pretty good U.S. team. And I thought that was a pretty good preparation for guys who then became part of the senior national team after that. And that's always been sort of the value to me of qualifying for the U.S like for the U.S. for the men's Olympic soccer tournament. I I thought there was value for the team that did it in 2000 and got to the semifinals that had Landon Donovan on it and a bunch of other guys. Um, Because every once in a while, I'll have someone who like is a, a European mainly, like say like, why do you Americans care about making the men's Olympic qualifying tournament? Because it's only an under 23 tournament. It's watered down as a result we in europe don't care much about it and the, and the point i always make is that for the u.s you don't get many chances to be in an international tournament that's you know on the on the format of a world cup and you should take every opportunity you can get and i think it's connected that the u.s missing out on the 2012 and 2016 olympics that was connected to missing out on the 2018 senior world cup yeah i think Outside of the Men's World Cup, and you can, I mean, there isn't a bigger platform for U.S. soccer. And that is not the case in, quote, footballing countries, right? The World Cup is always a big, the Euros is a big thing. But like our Gold Cup is not as big as the Olympics. The Olympics is an opportunity to reach into a level of fandom that just doesn't exist for regular U.S. men's national team games. And so... I think as a means of growing the sport, if the U.S. men won Olympic gold, it would be a big deal in this country. Arguably a bigger deal than all these club players we talk about all the time, Weston McKinney and Tyler Adams and all these guys doing well at their clubs. 
winning the winning Olympic gold would be bigger than that. Now, some of those guys might be on that team, but even if they weren't, whoever was on that team that did would kind of vault into a level of stardom that just doesn't exist because the Olympics as an entity is so much bigger than soccer in this country that it is a big deal that the U.S. does well at this tournament. And it can serve as a launching platform, even for you know more fans of the sport to come aboard. Yeah, okay, maybe that's an under-23 team, but when you're watching the U.S. and the Olympics, like we get into all kinds of sports that we normally don't watch, and soccer can be one of them. And this is where I do think it's interesting that the U.S. men do qualify for this year's Olympics. And we do ask Jason Christ this question a little bit. Spoiler is like, alert. Yeah, you've got the possibility of age-eligible guys. Tyler Adams, Christian Pulisic, Weston McKenney, Gio Reyna. Like, th- these are the senior national team guys, the main guys yeah. at this point. Like, clubs don't have to release them, but if the player really wants to go that can have an influence on that. And and I do find it interesting that this would take place, obviously, the Olympics in August. So that's before September, which is when senior men's World Cup qualifying starts. Um, You know, we haven't really seen these guys play together much for the senior men's national team due to COVID. I think it would be really cool to see him on there for the Olympics if the U.S. can qualify. But you got to take it step by step. Yeah, and that's, I presume, what the answer will be from Jason Kreis is we're not thinking about the Olympics. We're thinking about qualifying for the Olympics. Yes. And it is kind of interesting when you look at the squad. I mean, the, the failure to qualify for the Olympics has been kind of a marker in the decline of the national team, right? I mean, in some ways, 2018 was predicted by failure to qualify for 2016 and 2012 in terms of the Olympics and kind of this gap in the senior national team between guys that are kind of 25 and under and guys that are 32 and over. That gap is kind of filled by a bunch of players that fail to live up to expectations, fail to qualify for these youth tournaments. And so I I do think that it is an indicator of what's to come. But what you also see in this squad, this 20-man squad that's selected to go to Guadalajara is a number of players that have a body of work that we can judge them on. Like when Jesus Ferreira lines up up top for the U.S. men's national team, presumably, which I think he will, we've seen him for two-plus years at FC Dallas. He has thousands of professional minutes. That is such a departure from what the U.S. program has been before, and that's why progress is being made, even if these guys don't necessarily pan out as major senior national teamers. They're still getting a level of experience at a professional level at such a young age that now the U.S. is competitive at this level and has a greater likelihood of producing players at a higher level because they have so much experience so young. Yeah, definitely didn't used to be the case. It used to be that you had college players involved with uh, qualifying for the Olympics and, and often the Olympics themselves which, you know, these are professionals now. So uh, U.S. soccer is in a different place on the men's side, but, you know, you got to make this happen now. You've got to qualify. It's a tough group. And that journey starts this Thursday. So it's going to be an interesting Thursday because you have the later kickoff uh, for European games uh, due to the, the weird time zone situation with daylight savings happening earlier in the U.S. than in Europe. But... You know what? For me, given the choice of Europa League over 5 5 p.m. Eastern on Thursday, uh, USA, Costa Rica, I know which game I'm watching (laughs) and and, and very much looking forward to that. Yep. Same here. I'll uh, I mean, I'll probably be two screening it, but the priority is very much the U.S. men because and and I presume you'll talk to Jason about this. That first game is really important. 
Like Costa Rica is kind of the ball game, right? Because if you know you play Mexico away from home, I don't know if you're expecting uh, to to beat them on their own patch. But uh, against Costa Rica, a side that I've heard uh, Paul Tenora, the Athletic, he's Costa Rican and he's kind of bigged up this Costa Rican team as having some players that are getting professional minutes at club level. They're also in season in Costa Rica, and so they've got a bit more rhythm heading into this as opposed to this being kind of a preseason tournament for all of the MLS-based guys. I do think it is a really compelling opening match that'll be huge to determine whether if the U.S. can qualify. Including Randall Layall, by the way, uh, yes. from Nashville. So just one of the players on that Costa Rica team. But we'll talk about this stuff in just a second here with Jason Kreis. Chris, thanks, as always, for joining me. Thanks, Grant. Let's take a quick break, and I'll ask you a question. Do you ever want to watch Spain's La Liga or Copa Libertadores and get frustrated because they're not available on your cable or satellite system? You should try a streaming service I use that I love. It's called Fanatis with a Z, and you can watch all the action from La Liga, Copa Libertadores, and other international leagues and tournaments live and on demand from your favorite device, whether it's a mobile phone, a tablet, or directly on your TV with the Fanatis app. You can also watch the top leagues from France, Turkey, Brazil, and Argentina. Fanatis features channels you know, like BN Sports and English and Spanish, Gold TV, and many more. And it costs as little as $7.99 a month. If you'd like to try Fanatis for yourself, you can get a free week-long trial by clicking on the link in the episode description or by going to fntz.co slash grant hyphen fz. One more time, that's fntz.co slash grant hyphen fz. Thank you very much to Fanatis for sponsoring this episode. Fanatis, the world's largest stadium. Now, here's my interview with Jason Kreis. Our guest now is Jason Kreis, the head coach of the U.S. Under-23 men's national team that begins its CONCACAF Olympic qualifying tournament against Costa Rica this Thursday at 5 p.m. Eastern on FS1 and Tudeyane. Jason, great to see you, and thanks for coming on the show. Good to see you as well, and thanks for having me. Yeah, lots to talk about here. I mean, it's it's kind of crazy. You and I were all set to do this podcast interview exactly one year ago. You were already in Guadalajara for the tournament, I think. And then yeah. the whole the whole world shuts down due to the virus. And this qualifying tournament is a big deal for a lot of people, including you personally. How have you dealt over the last year with the impact of pushing everything back one entire year? I think I, I think I tried to handle it the way I view a lot of things right now, which is not to be too concerned with a whole lot of things I can't control. Uh, so not to really kind of focus on how are we going to do this a year from now? How can the team look different for a year from now? We'll we be able to get some of these players. Will they be in bigger European clubs where now they're not going to be available? Our team's going to be so different, right? I mean, you run through all those things when you start to open your mind to the what ifs uh, or what's going to happen a year from now. Uh, and so for me, it was more just about kind of keeping my nose down and trying to improve uh, as a coach, as well as keep communication with the players, keep communication with, with Greg and the full team staff, uh, and just keep really kind of moving the ball forward. So that's how I handled it. I think one of the, you brought up that this was a year ago and, and somebody brought it to my attention today. 
And I think some of the players have made fun of me a little bit, but actually a year ago we had a meeting with the players and I said, Hey guys, you know, there's this COVID thing happening. The sounds like the borders for the U S are going to shut down. So probably we're all going to go home, but I, I'm pretty sure about three weeks from now, we'll be back here to do the qualifications. So <laughs> I was dreadfully, dreadfully wrong on that one. huh? <laughs> Just a bit off. Um, you've been a club coach for, for a long time, for many years. In what ways do you have to change your approach when you're preparing for a tournament that decides everything? when it comes to qualifying? You know, I don't think you have to, Grant. I mean, I think, you know, I think I think it's important not to, actually. Uh, I think it's really important not to kind of get swept up in this idea that these games are so stressful and there's such small amount of room for error or, you know, to be swept up in this idea that we haven't qualified for the Olympics for so long and we need to do things differently, all those sorts of things. I think you need to get, get really focused. Uh, and that was my experience with with CONCACAF Champions League is that we needed to be really, really focused on that. Uh, so much so that we ch- we chose in Real Salt Lake back in those days to basically put the league aside and mm-hmm. say, we're going to, you know, for those league games that are happening during this, you know, we may be not as prepared as usual, maybe not really know all about the opponent and those sorts of things. We need to just play those games and then we need to get really focused on the CONCACAF games. Uh, and so I think that's where we're at right now is I feel like we're all really laser dialed into Costa Rica and that's it. You know, mm-hmm. What do we need to do to perform well against Costa Rica? What do, we, what do we need to be aware of with Costa Rica to put ourselves in the best possible position to get the three points in that game? And then when we, when we do that, we'll move on to Dominican Republic. And we do that, we'll move on to Mexico. So just very, very much one step at a time. We're speaking on Thursday. We're coming out on a Monday. Uh, you've just announced your final roster for the tournament here today. How do you feel about the group you've got? Really, really good. Um, really, really good. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, again, one of those things where I think, you know, thinking about it over the past several months, about difficult decisions these are going to be. Uh, and putting the you know initial roster together and then trying to decide the players that were to come down here. I think there was those moments were difficult, but I feel like once we had the group here, I'll be honest, I feel like once we had the group here, the decisions to narrow down the roster were pretty clear, uh, really, really clear in all of our minds based on how the players are right now, uh, how they look right now and how they how they look prepared to perform in another week. Uh, and so I felt like the, the decisions were, were, were pretty clear. And I, I don't really feel that way so often in my life. Uh, but I do think just by watching the training sessions and really paying attention to, to workloads and, and, and efforts that are being put in and, you know, just my eye test on the soccer, I think the decisions were pretty clear this time. You did surprise a few people by not picking two Portland Timbers players, Jeremy Abobasi and Eric Williamson. Did Portland being in CONCACAF Champions League have any impact on those decisions? It didn't. It didn't. You know, we got full support from Portland. Um, Gavin, I spoke to Gavin several times, really, really appreciative of of his support. Um, But again, you know, I think people don't oftentimes understand that, that a player can perform with one team one way and you bring him into a different environment and now the performance looks different. My personal experience to tell you that, you know, I had a, a pretty decent club career, but when I got involved with the national team programs, oftentimes it just didn't work for me for whatever reason. And I think for both of those players, you know, having both of those players in the January camp, um, their performances there mattered. Uh, and then to have Eric down here, you know, I spoke with Eric uh, at the end of the camp and we told him that he wasn't going to make the roster. And he kind of agreed. He said, you know, look, I haven't, I haven't been great. 
for whatever reason, I just don't, it just doesn't feel right. Uh, and so, you know, the other part, the other part a little bit about that is just the tactics that are being asked, what we're asking our guys to do. And, you know, the game model doesn't, doesn't fit all the players. So at the end of the day, the most important thing that I think I want everybody to know is that all of these guys that are in our pool, I'm a big fan of all these guys. If I could bring them all, I'd do it. But unfortunately, they only get to choose 20. Do you feel like based on the personnel you've chosen that you have enough creativity in your central midfield group? I do. I do. Uh, I really, really do. You know, I think that a player like Georgi Mihailovic right now, I think a lot of people have looked at him for the past several years and seen these glimpses of real creativity. He's in a really good moment right now. Uh, I feel like he's really shined in this, in this first 10 days of training. And I think he's a guy that can provide that for us. I think we've got a couple of players that, that are asked to play in their clubs in a more of a 4-2-3-1 format where now they're sitting next to a holding midfielder. And so they don't get viewed perhaps as creative as they can be. Uh, add on to that to the fact that a lot of these guys play in teams that their number 10 is a foreign player. Uh, and so they're maybe not showing some of these qualities that they have. Uh, ultimately, I think that we've got enough. Uh, and I think we've got a lot of dynamicism, you know, ability of our central midfielders to cover a ton of ground that's going to put them in good spots to finish plays. For listeners to this interview who maybe are going to be seeing your under 23s for the first time this Thursday, um, how do you envision your U.S. team playing? What do you see as its identity? You know, we are, um, we have been for almost two years now. and We are, I think, very, very well connected to the full team philosophy. Um, we, you know, I, I, I think it's a great thing. Uh, I don't think that, you know, I don't think I need to kind of stand behind something and say, oh, you know, this is difficult to try to play somebody else's philosophy because for me, it's, I see it the exact same way. I think Greg and I look at the game the same way. Uh, and so I think, you know, my hope is that you're going to watch it and without even knowing which, uh, which team we are, you can say, yeah, this, this is a U.S. men's national team. You mentioned this earlier. Everyone who follows U.S. soccer knows the U.S. men have missed out on qualifying for the last two Olympics. Did you spend any time studying what happened in those qualifying tournaments? Or is that something that you don't think of as being useful? Um, the, the only research I'll tell you that I did was just have a, a conversation with Caleb um, about some of the challenges. And he shared a, a lot of the challenges that he had. Um, and I would say that, that, you know, what's happened in the past really has no resemblance to what's where we are now. You know, Caleb, play, I think, was, you know, playing a lot of using a lot of college players uh, at that moment. You know, I think Andy was in a similar situation where, you know, a lot of the players um, weren't playing first team soccer. Uh, and I would say that my first camp that I went to um, in Pinatar, Spain, the group that was called in for that, you know, I got hired, I think, literally three days uh, before it. I remember I had to sign my contract before I could go to the first training. I hadn't signed it yet. <laughs> I was in Spain and Ernie's like, you got to give me the contract. <laughs> um, but but the, all that's to, to say that that, there, that that group that I had in that, in that uh, tournament was, you know, every single guy I sat down with the interview was like, you're not playing any soccer right now. <laughs> Nobody's playing with the first team. They're all just, you know, they're all just reserve players not being used. Maybe they're being playing, playing under 19 soccer with their club. Uh, and to, to where we are now, you know, where all these players are first team players and have contributed in massive ways over the last year to two years with their, with their first division soccer team. So uh, we're in a, just a much different situation, I think, now than, than we have been ever before. You've got a difficult group, Costa Rica, Dominican Republic, Mexico. You 
only will qualify for the Olympics by finishing in the top two of the group and then winning your semifinal. Does the difficulty of the group have any impact on how you approach any of the individual games like the first one against Costa Rica? I like it. I actually like exactly where we're at. I like that that first game, There's there needs to be a lot of emphasis put on it because that's what I would like. That's as I told you, that's my approach to, to life really is just to be focused on what's in front of me. Uh, and I think if in, in a lot of ways, if, if that first opponent was Dominican Republic, we might be looking past them. Uh, and so I think it's it's nice that we're that we're playing Costa Rica. I think it's also nice that Mexico's in our group. Um, ultimately, I think it does mean that that, that of those three teams, it's going to be somebody that's going to be real quality isn't going to be advancing. Um, but what it does is it sets you up for a semifinal that you know neither one of those teams are going to be in. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that uh, that ultimately that that needs to be looked at as a positive thing. No club is required to release its players for under-23 competition or the Olympics tournament itself. Have you gotten any indication on if you qualify for the Olympics, whether any of the age-eligible players like Christian Pulisic or Weston McKinney or Tyler Adams might be available for you in Japan? No. Uh, and again, <laughs> I'm not worried about that. I'm not having those communications yet. I would say from a positive side of that, we have gotten um, quite a bit of communication from some of the players mm-hmm. that they would like to be a part of that Olympics, some big players. Uh, and so that's an exciting thing. It starts with that. I mean, if the player's not real interested, then you got no hope at all. So at least we've got first step. I do remember I interviewed Tyler Adams on my podcast in early 2020, and he said he'd love to go to the Olympics if the opportunity arose. So I, there's, there's one guy, which yeah. I assume you, you might already know. Um, Who's that again? It, <laughs> <laughs> Never heard of that guy. <laughs> now, you had a long career coaching in MLS, you've had one. Uh, you won MLS Cup title with Real Salt Lake, took them to the CONCACAF Champions League final. Are there any ways in which you're different as a coach today than you were a few years ago? Countless ways. Countless ways. Really, really countless ways. Um, I think I see the game um, in, in a lot more detail now. I think, I, as I said, you know, coming into this coming in this environment in the last 10 days and having these decisions seem really clear to me. I, I just think that a lot of things have cleared up in my mind. Um, you know, I think that we had our, you know, we as a coaching staff had a lot of success in Real Salt Lake in early years. I think maybe because of that, it kind of put me in a position where I just kept doing the same thing um, and it kept working. Uh, and so, so much so that when I went in my next job, guess what? I was still trying to do the same things uh, and it wasn't the same team and it wasn't the same club and there wasn't the same, you know, there wasn't the same patience level and all these different things. Uh, and so now I think based upon, based upon those extremely big challenges uh, and not, not meeting expectations quickly enough, um, it's put me into a situation where I've had to be really, really reflective uh, about those experiences and, and, and try to think to myself about, you know, what needed to be done differently and how I could do things better and how I could look at the game differently and how I could coach the game differently. Uh, and so, yeah, I think it's, uh, I think I'm, I'm way, way different and I'm hopeful that I'm way better. <laughs> After this tournament, you'll go back to Miami where you're an assistant coach for inter Miami. What are you looking forward to in particular with that, especially with Phil Neville as the new head coach and what appears to be a, a more engaged part owner, David Beckham in on the field aspects this season. Yeah. You know, it's, um, 
it's only, I would say, only my second ever experience being an assistant coach. Uh, this is mm. another interesting thing that most people probably don't know about me is that I went right from playing to being a head coach. And so literally it had never really knew what it was like to be an assistant coach. And always kind of, I think I always kind of looked at them and said, man, that's, that's a nice job. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, in the last year, getting to work with Greg uh, over the last 12 months or even January of, I guess it was, no, January of 2020 was my first experience there. Um, being his assistant coach, being able to go to a couple of camps this past year. Um, I really enjoy it. I really enjoy sort of this different, um, perspective you get to coach from essentially you get to have I think a lot more personal relationships with the players a lot more individual work a lot more individual communication uh, as well as this just idea that that I've been in his shoes before so much so that I know already kind of what he's thinking before perhaps he's even made a decision on things and so I you know I looked at those experiences with Greg and say how can I handle handle problems before he even has to think about them how can I make this, how can I make this uh, environment so, so seamless that, you know, it's pretty easy for him to operate within. So that's what I'm looking at my experience with Phil, hopefully to, to, to become really, really good in that role to help him, um, to help him be his best self. There was an interesting quote this past week. I don't know if you saw it from the NBA player, Steph Curry, where he said he still has a lot to accomplish, but nothing left to prove. And I'm wondering, do you feel the same way about your coaching career or do you feel you still have something to prove about yourself as a coach? Um, I would say that I still have something to prove very, very much so, very much so, um, because I feel, you know, again, just from a personal point of view, I feel that those decisions, the last two decisions and the roles I was in uh, weren't correct. Uh, I believe that they were the timing of those decisions was was a little unfair. Uh, and so now, you know, I'm looking, looking back at those situations again, thinking about how I can prove, but also looking forward and saying, you know, my next opportunity is going to be different and I'm going to make sure it is. So yeah, I definitely feel like I have something to prove. Just to wind up here, my sense has always been you're, you're a driven guy, very well-respected guy. What would you say drives you the most at this point? Gosh, you know, I, 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 I really think that my drive comes from within, um, mm. and I and I think it, it it it's it's this fire within me to just be to, to compete. Really, <laughs> I, I I really do. I, I think I kind of wake up every morning and think I want to be the best dad, and I want to be the best husband, and I want to be the best coach. And now for Inter Miami, I want to be the best assistant coach in the league. And so, you know, if I'm playing golf, I want to be the best golfer out here. I want to play ping pong. I want to be the best ping pong player in the whole group. You know, and so. Mm. I think it's that. I just think it's this inner desire to to really be the absolute best that I can in, in everything. Jason Kreis's U.S. under-23 men's national team begins its CONCACAF Olympic qualifying tournament against Costa Rica this Thursday at 5 p.m. Eastern on FS1 and Tudene. Jason, thanks so much for taking the time. Good luck down there. You're welcome. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Jason Kreiss, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.